17. <laughs> you know I can't count that high, Doc. Look, I've only got so you many can count to 17. You have that many digits. But you had like 60s and 80s and stuff. The numbers were out there. Like, I'm not even convinced 80 is a real number, by the way. That might be a government conspiracy. Like, those numbers up there, like, they get a little, I don't know. I mean, have you ever seen 80 things? Like, no. That's like saying 100 people attend Dragon Cup. There's only like 10. Enjoy yeah. your hot chocolate and we'll get started. You, I see what uh, you're doing there. Your math, your scientific notation numbers are really bad. I mean, you know, hand wavium is a thing, Doc. Hand wavium <sighs> is a thing. All right. So, hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans, it's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over science fiction, passions, and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. So without further ado, before we let you introduce yourself, Andy, I have to ask, are you another one of her plants? She's bringing in ringers lately that are like scientists and stuff. Are you one of those? <laughs> no. <laughs> He says convincingly. With a very big question mark. Because, you know, like I was doing it. She's like, oh, I'm a microbiologist. I'm like, that's not real. Yeah. No, I'm, I unfortunately, I have zero nerd credential. Well, no, zero official nerd credential. Plenty of nerd credential, but no, nothing to back it up, essentially. But that's you did okay. stay at Holiday and Express the other night, so that counts. There what? you go. Exactly. Care. Stop stalking the guests. Wait, that's I not there's a certain level of background research that's fine after a certain level, like where they slept, what hotel they stayed at. You know, you grass. Why didn't you tell me that before? Maybe if you had told me that, I wouldn't have gotten that restraining order from Elon Musk. All right. I did, I did tell you. you just didn't listen. It's that brain damage thing. Uh, what? Speaking to my good ear. All right. <laughs> you introduce yourself to our audience. So. Uh, I'm Andy Pelliquin, author of Dark Epic Fantasy, Epic Dark Fantasy, whichever order you want to put it in. Uh, a little bit of military slash cyberpunk sci-fi just for the heck of it. Um, yeah, that's pretty much all the interesting things about me. We can pretty much end here, I think. <laughs> all right. Well, that was a show, guys. That's a wrap. <laughs> no, right, no, next... he wants to tell us about his book. Oh, okay. We'll oh, around talk about dark fantasy. fair enough. So the second part of the introduction, dear listener, as we do, because we always do, is how we first found them. And this is yet another slate where Doc scheduled and she said, be here and do this thing or I will stab you. So here I am unstabbed. How did you find him, Doc? I found know. him because a mutual friend of ours, Bryce O'Connor, recommended him and said, hey, look, you know, this guy would be good to have. And he emailed me. And so a match made an email. Works for me. It's probably one of like a handful that wasn't, oh, we met at a bar. So, I mean, that's progress, Doc. We can meet at a bar. We'll meet at a bar in person one day. 100%. That's, all the best things happen at bars. Pretty much. I think she goes to a bar and just calls it a convention so it sounds less alcoholic. <laughs> like, I don't go to meetings. Convention <laughs> of stuff. All right, Doc, we get to ask him the religion question. Notice I'm not denying. Okay, so if you had to pick one, which one would it be? Aliens, Terminator, or RoboCop? T2. Very specific. Terminator 2. Okay. Now, because we're polytheistic and we love our fantasy, Beastmaster, Witcher, or Excalibur? You know... I actually had to think about that one for a minute because Excalibur is just, it's so classical. It is, it, 
is amazing. I, I cannot, I cannot help but love the grumpy, monosyllabic grunting response badass that is the witcher like that was like i was hooked from from minute one you know what i will admit i watched um the witcher and the witcher was the first time i really believed that henry cavill could act as well as my brother kept telling me he could and i'm straight up now i he did amazing as superman for superman you know you don't really need a massive amount of 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 depth to be superman it's just kind of there yeah. Um he did okay in the one I think it's called The Man from Steel, I believe it's called. Man of Steel. Um yeah. he was fine in, you know, in his original role in um Count of Monte Cristo when he was a teenager, but a hundred percent the Witcher. I think the Witcher cemented him as in it a did. way, King of the Nerves nerds as much as Jason Momoa. No, admittedly, honestly, what really cemented him as a god of geeky nerddom was the fact that his COVID hobby was painting Warhammer 40k. And building computers topless. And building computers. And I'm like, hi, I love you. <laughs> you gonna be okay, Doc? Do you need a moment? So I right, just check in, you know. Okay, my computer froze for a second. <laughs> no, 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 I know, but you just were getting all gushy about the Witcher. So I just wanted to make sure you were okay. You didn't need some private time. Henry Cavill is amazing. That's all I have to say. I mean, you know, I, he's he's very happily in a relationship, but but not you with know, you, right? Sadly for him, I would not be on this podcast if I was in a relationship. Probably with him. all of us. I think. There you go. I like that. that as well we're as going with that one. So we'll do with that. Um, at the Blasters and Blaze podcast, we do both sci-fi and fantasy, but which one was your first love, sci-fi or fantasy? You know, I, I, I actually thought about that question. I feel like the Chronicles of Narnia was kind of my first taste of the speculative fiction genre, but I don't think I really fell in love until I went from, so Sherlock Holmes was a birthday present that I got on my 10th birthday. I devoured the entire volume in a lot of months. heavy reading for 10. Uh, I loved that shit. And then I went from there to Tarzan because it's logical progression. And then from Tarzan to John Carter of Mars. And it was, it was everything I wanted. <laughs> it was sword fights. It was, you know, spaceship and ray guns and beautiful women and jumping 30 feet into the Martian air. And I was like, Oh, I am, I am here for this. And, and then from John Carter, like I let, I read every single book that I could find and it just naturally segued into Conan. And I was hooked. So that was sort of my progression. So, so have you, you heard about they're doing an expanded universe of Conan novels? Uh, yes, I heard uh, Scott. Uh, uh, yes, Scott Odin did one of those novels. Uh, uh, no, no, no. Like Titan Publishing oh. is doing a whole Ooh. bunch. Ooh, oh, I'm yeah. so I'm so there. The Conan audiobooks were what got me into audiobooks. I just had a bunch of time on my hands, uh, and I just started listening to first the original Robert uh, Edward Howard R E H, and then L Sprague de Camp, and I binged all of them so hard. Yeah, they're they're well worth binging. So, so yeah. what did you think of the uh, the since you read your first exposure was Chronicles of Narnia? Did you enjoy the the TV movies that they made for it? You know, they were fine. Uh, I, I loved the childishness of the, the story. Like it was it was kind of what I was expecting. And then when they tried to make it a little bit more adult, it, it kind of jarred a bit. Honestly, the, the classic uh, 
Chronicles of Narnia will always be that old cartoon with, you know, Turkish delight and, you know, the, all, all just the old cartoon. I don't know, I think it's from the 1950s or something. It's just amazing. And what about the John Carter of Mars? What did you think of that movie? That was, in my opinion, poorly marketed because most people didn't realize that's what it was. But I thought for what it was, it was good. I, I would have watched the sequel. It was not the John, it was not my John Carter of Mars, essentially. Like I was expecting a little bit more of a, of like, of a more mature hero and a more mature story. It was very action adventure You got the romance with Deja Thoris. It was, it was a fun action adventure movie. But when I first read John Carter of Mars, he was like this hero dude, like this mature former soldier who is an actual hero and he's got, you know, the political influence and he's dealing with monarchs or whatever the Martian equivalent was. Like it was a much more complex and mature story. Whereas um, Ben Barnes, no, it was Taylor Kitsch, right? Who did that one? I don't know. Either I one of the two. The, Belcher movies. the twins. They're, they, you know, it was an action adventure movie with nothing, nothing to sink my teeth into. And I think that's why it flopped in a way because it had so much potential for so much more and didn't quite hit the mark. Yeah, I think when you're dealing with iconic properties that have a lot of layers to them, like like this one and uh, Dune, you really have to take the time mm -hmm. to do them right and to get some of those nuances or else you end up going, unless you're very straight up, we're doing this part of it. So, um, because otherwise you, I think now more so than, bef than ten, even 10 years ago, and definitely versus like the 80s and the 90s it it really is so much more and i think people have learned to i think fans have protested enough that they've learned to listen let's hope i hope <clears throat> so basically what you're you describing okay is the, yeah um so basically what you're <laughs> describing is the fact that hollywood routinely produces movies on the assumption that their audience are more their audiences are morons and then they flop because the audiences feel offended that they were treated like morons. Well, I think it's because they don't under, like, they, I think in some cases they go for stuff with an existing fan base. And I think they're only now starting to realize that existing fan, fan base is going to expect something. They're not going to take table scraps. Yeah. Or it's like if you if you go into like let's say with the new um, Wheel of Time TV show, which I'm totally stoked about. Oh, dude, you don't want to if even they, hear my Jennifer about it. If they if they treat oh. the, this new show like they treated the Shannara TV show, and they made it like this young adult thing, and they really focused on the coming of age, almost like a uh, what is it called, Sh Shadow Hunters or Divergent yeah. kind of flair you're going to alienate a lot of people who are coming in expecting something more mature along the lines of say the expanse or, you know, one of these shows that are a little bit more complex, nuanced, nuanced and, and, you know, they take their time to develop. You don't need to have everything happen and every single episode. I, I do think the, the Netflix era of TV has taught us to be patient and to wait for things to build up. Yeah. I, and I think part of it though also is, it, it, it's a very different writing style when you know you have six episodes to tell a complete story arc versus how some of these newer shows, like when Supergirl aired, they aired and they had six episodes to prove that they were worth keeping. And then they got renewed for the series. Okay, so now we've done a complete story arc in six episodes. How do we expand that to the 24? Now, one thing I do miss about... Oh, traditional TV is I really do like the 24 episode seasons. 
I'm, right? I'm a baby. I'm a brat. And I really do like that. But I also really like the fact that these, these shows are given. We know we are going to authorize you six episodes. Here is your budget. Eight hours of TV. Here is your budget. And, it, and I think what ends up happening is you end up with a better quality. Like if you look at um, Ava, uh, Legend of Korra, they talk about it. And some of the, the articles and the interviews afterwards, like they did a lot of flashback episodes because they were trying to, they had to fill out, but they had no budget. So, yeah. and um, so I really like that aspect. And um, my friend Jennifer is the con chair for uh, Jordan Con and it's a Wheel of Time Con. Oh, anytime. I, she is so hopeful and I am sitting here going, let me know after it airs how hopeful you were because <laughs> I am the pessimist. <laughs> oh, absolutely. But actually I'm more of an optimist. So I'm looking at shows like, let's say The Mandalorian or The Witcher or shows that, or, or, or we're going to say the early seasons of Game of Thrones. <laughs> right up until season eight and a half, they did an amazing job. These shows that really did take their time and develop it and and give you time to sort of exist in the world, but without trying to stuff the story. Like, like The Witcher did an amazing thing of keeping each of the stories actually fairly sparse. You don't really see a whole bunch of the world at large. Yeah. You don't get to explore the kingdoms, but you get an amazing sense of who this guy is, only this guy. And of course, um, Yennefer and a little bit of Ciri. But you get these great, so you have these characters that you're just yeah. latched onto and they keep you absolutely hooked. And then they go building out and building bigger and adding layer after layer. And that's what makes these shows successful versus like a lot of the more traditional network shows that have 24 <laughs> episodes. They've got time to develop, you know, they need to develop a character over 24 episodes. So they really have to sort of um, play around with like the setting or whatever the show's gimmick is. Yeah, there's a lot of intense storytelling in those tighter episodes, definitely. So so part of what the, the reason Hollywood, in my opinion, falls flat is what you're describing when you say they they make it too juvenile when, when the audience and the source material was too mature, is they're basically trying to be all things to all people and they fall flat across the board. Yeah. And that's one of the first things, you know, the indie authors learn is you've got to know who your audience is and write stories that the they want because i mean it's great if you appeal to the you know fill in the blank demographic but if they don't read the kind of stuff you're writing why does it matter yep 100 and i think that's where hollywood hasn't quite figured it out <clears throat> i think you're starting to see some of that with the netflix style and i think you're seeing that with some of the indie stuff that's coming out i mean because you oh, tell I me think you netflix has done an amazing job with some of the things and adapting some of it is um what was it? The gentleman who does who who does the Outlander series, Diana Gibbon has even said. I think that's how you pronounce Gabaldon. it. Gabaldon. Yeah, I, I'm horrible at that. Um, she's even said that he put stuff in there from studying what they did at the time. That she, if she were to rewrite the book, she'd go back in and add. So um, you have to have a lot of respect for the property versus just viewing it as a money making adventure. Yeah. Yep. So. so. All right, so we talked about your first exposure you described in books, at least, was the Chronicles of Narnia. Were there any other exposures to uh, speculative fiction, like in cartoons, board games, or anything else that you had when you were young, or was it Chronicles of Narnia was your first? Star Wars. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not young wait, enough. Wait. I, I'm sorry, Is I'm not old enough. Sci-fi or fantasy to you? Oh, both. Sci-fan, 100%. Take that, Nick Garber. 
Um, so, so I was not young enough to be, you know, in the cinemas when it came out. All of three of the movies were released, I believe, by the time I actually got around to watching them, which means I kind of got to binge this universe where there's freaking lightsabers, right? Out, just the greatest thing you, ever. You and remember then when sci fi used to air those every Thanksgiving, that was the yep. best Thanksgiving tradition. <clears throat> Absolutely. That was and then before in, the sci fi channel became like ghosts and rednecks. You're a redneck. <laughs> yeah, but they make like me look normal. <laughs> the stuff they put uh, on the Sci-Fi Channel, it's like definitely not science fiction. But I'm sorry, we interrupted. We were talking about Star Wars no. and how you're a young whippersnapper. I was just gonna say, so uh, 2001 when the Phantom Menace came out, you know, I still was young enough that I was just you know enchanted by what was you know kind of a crappy story, but lightsaber. <laughs> And spaceships, and oh my god, this is amazing! And the lightsaber battles in the original in, in trilogy one, two, and three are hands down the best, like straight up. I will admit they pulled out all the stops for those. They straight really up. did. So I definitely think Star Wars is the case. Have you seen that trend where people go back and they listen to songs that they listened to as a teenager, as an adult, and they're like, oh, oh no. I think there is something to be said about some of those movies and books that we look at. Yeah, I, I, I recently was trying to describe Sailor Moon to JR, and I'm like, well, there's a plot hole that you could fit like the entire Galaxy's Edge universe in, but I still love it. Yeah. Sometimes you just love stuff because you love it, because you loved it as a kid, and it's imprinted in your brain, and you're never okay. going to stop loving it, no matter how bad. It's going to cause a death spiral of depression if you stop <laughs> loving it. So yeah, you so can't, that would be like G.I. Joe that. for me. Uh, they had worse aim than the stormtroopers. No one ever got shot. Like, <laughs> if I'm going to war again, I want to go that way because, like, I would have yeah. gotten shot. By. Totally would have been safer. Um, and then everyone ends laughing for some reason. So, yeah, that's one of those ones that, you, you, as a kid, you watch it and, like, this is the most awesome stuff ever. I want all the action figures. Yeah. And then as a grown up, you're like, yeah, they needed better writers. Yeah. I tried Straight learning up. how to kick from watching She Ra. That was not a good idea. I was. How badly did you fall on your backside? I did not follow my backside. I only became a klutz after I became an adult. Not. I was okay. totally beforehand. So before we embarrass her and let her <laughs> humiliate herself in front of all 12 of our viewers, uh, let's get back to you, Andy. Hey, how, did you, uh, <laughs> how did you uh, – what is it you love about speculative fiction more broadly? So my favorite thing about speculative fiction is I can deal with anything real – and I have this layer of dissociation from the topic. I can insult any religion I want. I can insult any political system. I can insult any person, but it's set in my world and it's named something else. So I'm good. My hands are clear. Okay, so wait, in my have you killed anybody that in that you don't have to say this is yes or no question. You don't have to say who the character is or who the person is. Have you ever built a character just so that you based off of somebody just so you could kill them? Oh, 100%. Okay. I, I actually I actually wrote a character named Jonas Alex into my world, my sci-fi world, just so I can have this bloviating blowhard come on and just rant nonsense anytime I wanted to. And it was just, it was my favorite character to write because I, like, I would literally watch YouTube videos of this person who shall not be named and whose name is not very clearly understandable based on this. <laughs> and, and it was just like the most ridiculous things I could think of to write, I got to write them. It was amazing. So he was your Joe Buckley. 
So yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with Joe Buckley. I'm not. He at Bain, he is the most killed person ever. <laughs> That's awesome. He was an editor for a long time, and so many people have killed him. It is. I have a goal in in life. I want to be the Joe Buckley of my generation. I want to have J.R. Hanley be killed more times in fiction than him. And I don't know that I'm going to do it. But I keep telling people, if you need somebody, like, look, sign me up. J.R. Hanley can die. Kill me twice. Clone me and kill me a hundred more times. I'm okay with I'm that. I'm sorry. Now. Should I put you on the Ringo kill list? I can do that. Yes. I, and, I definitely want someone to write a cloning story where they, like, clone a thousand of me and then kill all thousand. Because that'll be the boost I need. You think they'll count <laughs> that, Doc? I don't know how. I don't know how Bane counts. I don't know how Bane counts either. I think they just kind of just roll with the fact that Joe Buckley will die. Well, one day, one day I'll be more than that. We'll see. Or I'll just, you know, write books people want to read and we'll go with that instead. So how did your love of speculative fiction as a genre transition, now we're going to talk about you, the author, into you writing stories in this space? I mean, I feel like it's kind of a natural thing. I loved the marvelous and wonderful and creative and unrealistic and impossible of it all. So, of course, I would have to start writing those kind of things because my brain is like, it's like I love puzzles. So it's like if I can make something absolutely insane, totally believable, I am all over that. And, of course, I'm super independent and I don't like people telling me what to do. So it's like... I can't, you know, get through Los Angeles traffic in an hour to save my heroine. Fine. I'm going to go do it on, you know, fictional world that I created where no one can tell me that the traffic is bad. We just, I like yeah. doing that. I don't like, I don't like obeying other people's rules. <laughs> so here's an important one that I've had with my friend, Josh Hayes and his publisher who Josh Hayes is right. His publisher is wrong. But do you think in the future we're going to go entirely digital or will we still have paperwork? Oh, I think paperwork is always going to be there. Josh yeah. loves you now. You are now his favorite person. I might be able to get you on his podcast. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so no, I think involved. paperwork will always be there, at least at a certain level. It may just be that it's one or two things. Yeah, paperwork's always going to be there. No, the, the publisher's speculation was in his, uh, his sci-fi that it should be digital, like that they wouldn't actually print out paperwork. And that's been a running joke in the anybody that works for the government. They've been going paperless for so long, but still two decades later, they still haven't. I think there there will always be key key pieces of paper, at least that will always have to be physical, or some right. some new low fi, uh, low tech version of paper. Some yeah, exactly <laughs> something that cannot be corrupted externally, aside from you know destroyed by fire, water, or whatever. But something that is just so simple that it's accessible to everybody, versus something that requires some technology that can be yeah something that can be compromised something that can be shut down all of that that's fair that's fair uh and that's one of the things that they're wrestling with as you know the historian in me comes out is when everything is digital like how do you preserve that for posterity's sake in, in a pure form that isn't altered i mean we already have a point where like some of our founding fathers their sons and daughters literally burned letters that they thought didn't put their parents in a good light and when it's digital, like it's that much easier to corrupt the the narrative, oh, yeah. so to speak. So, anyway, uh, I will stop because Doc is giving me the look that says nobody cares. Uh, <laughs> I like studying dead people; it's it's sort of my jam, um, and mostly because they can't my disagree with me. They do. They do. No, they don't, Doc. They don't disagree <laughs> with me. I'm always right when they're dead. All right, you know Bob, what? that's a serial killer. Close to my candy comment earlier. 
We're going to move on because uh, the FBI is going to be like, uh, is this guy a serial killer? That's not a little creepy. So <laughs> You're a serial killer and I'm kidnapping kids. Yeah, I saw that comment, but we won't go there. Halloween is over. <laughs> we'll just move on. Uh, so many authors let their own real life experiences influence the stories they tell. So were there any specific formidable moments that shaped you as a storyteller? So many of them, but I think they're all just like small little things that sort of shaped the way that I perceive the world or that shaped the way that I look at things. Uh, but one of the things that I have always loved is, is just writing things that I love into my character because I can, you know, I can sort of communicate my love of these things. So in my, in my, in this novel, Assassin, um, the character, he's this, you know, basically a Witcher-esque, you know, monosyllabic grunting, grim, grumpy assassin guy, wears all these disguises, but he goes and he walks among what are essentially cherry blossoms and it brings him joy because me growing up in Japan, I love cherry blossom trees. It still is a happy memory, you know, sense memory for me. So just things like that, little details, um, they're what helped me connect to the character a lot more. Well, cherry blossoms are awesome. We had a cherry blossom, a cherry tree at one point. It didn't grow any cherries, but it had pretty blossoms. Blossoms are worth way more than the cherries. I know, but at, at like nine, I was really about the cherry because I didn't. Fair enough. I was so excited about having a fruit tree. <laughs> so now transitioning away from some of the right writing stuff and getting into some of our fandom, because I love fandom. It is literally why you have a job and we have an audience. Uh, have you had any cool fan art or cosplay of any characters yet? Yeah, I got I got actually super lucky. Um, was one of the admins of the Indie Fantasy Addicts group. Uh, she reached out to me. She's like, I love the hunter. Here's a picture of me. She dressed up as him for Halloween. And oh, it was so cool. cool. So cool. And then another one of my uh, my hardcore readers, they actually made me um, the, the full assassin costume, like with the dark gray cloak and the vest and the bracers and the pants. Like, so, so cool. Fans, man. I know. I'm. I got so lucky with that. I haven't gotten any fan art, unfortunately. I love fan art. Uh, uh, fan cosplays count as fan art. Absolutely, well, absolutely. Can you take a picture of the the cosplay they sent you? That for you, obviously, you don't want to show off fans without their permission. But if it's an actual costume that you could take a picture of, that is just the outfit. Um, in your newsletter in December, this will air in November. So that way, if they sign up for your newsletter in December, they'll be able to see what you were talking about. Uh yes. Yes, I can do that. Perfect. So that. JR is all about f figuring out that angle to get people to sign up for your family. Well, no, because it's the one it's the one place where one you can control and two, like if you don't have value for it, what's the point? So like I tell stories about stupid stuff I did in the army. He can show so cool fan art. Yeah, I mean I didn't die, so there's that. Um <laughs> but uh but yeah, it's just one of those things, right? Like you gotta give value to it, and so that's that's a perfect kind of cool way. Am I in any of your fan, your your newsletters, Jr. Seska made me do this. No, because it's not therapy. It's it's newsletter, right? So you've got to distinguish. <laughs> Plus, my therapist actually subscribes to my newsletter, so that'd probably be bad. <laughs> yeah, you know, we're just gonna move on. Ask them the next fandom question. Okay. Has anybody asked for your autograph out in public? Um, not, not a, like outside of a convention or anything. I've had some people like come up to me at a convention and say, oh my God, you know, I got your book online months ago or something, read it and loved it. And uh, you're here. It's happened a couple of times in awesome. Vancouver, surprisingly. 
Um, I, I live near, I live in British Columbia. So I, I, you know, did a convention at Vancouver a couple years ago and then in Los Angeles. Oh, wow. That's really awesome though. So, um, have you spotted anybody reading one of your books in the wild? I haven't seen them, but, uh, so my wife works at a dental clinic and her coworker told me, so this is going to be a little convoluted. I apologize in advance. Her coworker's <laughs> boyfriend works at like this water treatment plant literally six hours away from here and the boyfriend was talking with one of the people that he works with and they she was like oh i really like this author you know and she he started describing this, this person started describing this author and this this co-worker's boyfriend was like oh yeah i'm friends with that guy like it was some uh -huh. random person in the middle of nowhere had read my books and so i actually signed a book and sent it with the co-worker's boyfriend to give oh. to her. I, I, I thought it was just a really cool coincidence. No, that, that oh. is awesome. It's proof that you, you never know where people so are. This, this is a little known secret. Andy's a little um, humble, so he won't tell you this, but uh, they've actually spotted moose out in the wilds of Canada, reading his books. They're huge fans. The, the moose population in Canada does seem to enjoy it. I don't know why. Cause they're friendly. I hey. think, I don't know. But anyway, that's uh, now that you know that we can move on. I felt like they just the audience needed to know. Andy, I, I don't know. Um, so I know I haven't met an unfriendly Canadian. So oh, you you come up to Canada, you'll meet a few. <laughs> <laughs> that, I, I, I have been heard by Luke Camecolo that they just live in the wilds of Canada, and that's why. Yep. Absolutely. You you pull over on the side of the road too near their farm to, you know, check your flat tire or something. They'll come out with their shotgun. You need something? Oh, see, I'm from the South, so that won't face me. That's that's true. But in Canada, that's like that's like straight up assault. Have I'm you seen um, a modern version of Beverly Hillbillies? I haven't. So there's there's a scene where they're going down the highway and some wannabe gangbanger pulls a pistol on, on the, the redneck. Right. And he's like, Oh, that's a nice one right there. And he pulls his shotgun. This here's what I carry. That sort of would be the response in the South. They just like, you know, they'd have this little standoff as they compare guns and then end up drinking. A beer exactly. So, so uh, what is your weirdest or funniest interaction with a fan since you've started writing? You know, I'm always the weird one in the interactions. Um, I make it a point to drink <laughs> a lot of coffee at conventions. So weird ideas come to me. Like I have, I have, I have involved fans in my candy wars with people across the aisle from me at conventions or um, one <laughs> literally, you know how authors, they put bowls of candy to entice people to come and, and, and read their books. Right. So you just have a bowl of candy, and when the other person's not looking, maybe they're talking with a potential fan, you whip a candy at them. Not to hurt, obviously, but <laughs> it was so much fun. And we got you know other readers involved, and they started throwing candy too, or they would cover for me while I was throwing candy or distract the author who was my target. Uh, and then at another, another convention... This was not my fault at all. The person made the mistake. I was sitting at a table, you know, at a dinner, sort of a party thing. And the person comes up and she leaves her backpack and says, could you wash this for me? Make sure no one takes anything out of it. And I was like, yeah, sure. What about putting stuff in? She's like, whatever, dude. And so I spent, I spent the weekend with some friends, like literally by the end of the weekend, half of the convention was in on it, just sneaking 
garbage into her backpack straws soy sauce pack just she she found out when she got home we were you know good friends so she had a like she sent me this image and there was literally 30 pieces of garbage i got some some people to to sneak me some condoms to stick in um you know just anything plastic empty plastic water bottles it's just this big backpack snuck stuff in it was it was amazing and everybody else including her best friend was in on it and then she got home and found it all and sent me this image. It was just, it was the best. And that's coffee's fault. <laughs> I believe it. So this is the part of the interview, Andy, where we talk about everything you have written. But it sounds like with all that caffeine, that might be a lot. So can you give us the Reader's Digest version instead? Whew, okay, so two two worlds to live in, essentially. There's this military cyberpunky sci-fi with a former special ops sniper turned government assassin real you know he's being handled by sort of the equivalent of the cia he's former special ops but he got hit with a grenade blast that paralyzed him from the waist down so he is his body is basically being moved by an ai implanted in his brain that controls kind of a iron man-esque for lack of a better word exo suit and so it's really fun to play with this both badass at the peak of his abilities and then when he gets out of the armor he's in a wheelchair so it's just a really, really fun dynamic to play with. And then all of my fantasy stuff is set in the same world. So there's currently four series. There's badass half-demon assassin with the cursed dagger that drives him to kill. Young girl sold to a thieves guild that becomes, basically, it's called Queen of Thieves. It kind of explains what she's going to be. Um, a spinoff of their, sort of, the young characters from both of their stories. And then a military fantasy, which is basically a modern special ops style unit with sniper uh scout medic ray uh, rifleman captain all of that uh but sort of in this roman legion versus viking giant war and it's just it's just a ton of fun and it's sort of that sort of ex umbra missions you know everything is behind the scenes there you see some big military battles with tens of thousands of people and then sometimes they're just do, doing black ops shit but it's all in this fantasy world cool that sounds like a lot of fun sounds like just jr's style too are there audiobooks i asked this because i'm an ear hole not an eyeball there there are the so that the military fantasy one was recorded by ralph lister which was just a, an absolute awesome thing for me um and then the first three of the military sci-fi books are also on audiobook all right. Well, those all sound fascinating, but today we're going to talk about Assassin, book one of the Darkblade series, because, you know, that sounds bright and cheery. Um, so where did the premise for this uh, universe come from? How'd you come up with the idea? Was it psychedelics, Ouija board, overindulging in spiked decaf coffee? All, all of the above. Um, so decaf I... isn't a thing. <laughs> it's also a myth. Yeah, fair enough. Um, I love... The Night Angel series by uh, Brent Weeks, right? The character, I didn't like the young character, but the older character, Durzo Blit, badass assassin, peak of his powers, functionally immortal. None of this training montage nonsense. It's just going out and killing people for three books straight. Loved that. Find out at the end of the third book, there's no more. What? Horror, shock, dismay, outrage. Fine, I'm going to write my own. Um, and <laughs> I just have to write a character who is exactly like that, you know, um, obviously he became his own thing. He became much more complex thanks to Criminal Minds. There's this episode of Criminal Minds where the the villain of the week, literally the only Asian American 
villain in the entire 13 seasons or whatever. He hears the voice of his father in his mind. And the father is always like browbeating him because he's not good enough. And the only time his father shuts up is what he kills. So light bulb moment right there. You got this demonic voice in his head. It just works. Yeah, I know. I was like, I'm not sure that would work for my mother's voice in my head. No, but, and so it's just, it kind of evolved into that. Okay. That's a little dark and we'll try to turn it around with an even darker, but more awesome cover. So can you tell us the story of this cover art? It is kind of amazing. I actually like it. Um, so what? how did you get, like, what's the story of this art? Like, tell us, tell us all the details. So when I, so I've had three incarnations of this book. The first one was called Blade of the Destroyer, and it looked like a heavy metal album cover. And it was just basically dark, uh, black, red, and white. Super, super stark. Um, it didn't really resonate with readers. They were like, I'm not sure what genre it is. So when I relaunched it in 2018, uh, I got the photo manipulation covers, which were pretty much standard at the time. Um, simple, you know, dark, darker colors, darker characters, you can see. Uh, but then recently when I was relaunching the series to sort of, because I got to write another six or seven books at the, at the back half. So I basically collected images of all of my favorite assassin series, including the Night Angel series, um, Kel Cade's um, series, the David Douglas's Shadow Dance, and I just basically told my uh, my artist, do these but better, and and this is what he came up with. Like and and so the face, it's a little hard to tell, but the face I always pictured Jason Momoa as the as the main character, just that sort of like Jason Momoa as Kel no, Drogo. Jason Momoa in that as a cosplay. Yeah. And so Jason Momoa as Cal Drogo, like, that really get dark. Him to stop smiling. Yeah, exactly. Angry, angry eyebrows, everything. And so I was like, do that. And so he did that. He he shifted the feature the features enough that it's not immediately visible as Jason Momoa, but he's got that that sort of dark Cal Drogo face, which is exactly what I wanted for this guy. It's it's just perfect. And so the the cover is just this badass weapon, this dagger with the gemstone, the gemstone lights up every time he kills someone. It absorbs the life energy of the people that he kills and it feeds him power. Um, and it's this voice in his head that's just kind of driving him to kill. If he doesn't kill often enough, it starts nagging at him until it becomes like a migraine headache and eventually his head would explode. He never actually gets that far because that would be the end of the story and that would be no fun. But so Doc, that's sort of the- see, uh, Do you see the Momoa in that? I do see the Momoa in it. Now maybe stop picking on me. No, I was just asking because, you know, you I see colors and I don't. So I just thought I'd zoom in real quick. I do see the Momoa in him. Okay. And we will stop before that gets any creepier. And uh, you can ask <laughs> question 18. So what would your 30-second elevator pitch be for this novel? Oh, half-demon assassin with a dagger, with a magical dagger and a voice that drives him to kill, fighting against his own inner, darker nature. Dexter good, in a fantasy good. world with a flavor of the Punisher and Wolverine. So what is it that makes your series unique among the dark fantasy assassin series? So the a lot of the dark fantasy assassin series, like for example, Night Angel, there's this Durzo Blint character who is very similar, but the story focuses much more on the younger Kylar Stern, you know, mm -hmm. coming of age, training, montage, all of that. Um, same thing with the Shadow Dance series. It's about this young character, Aaron. 
and the Kelcade's series too. It's also about a younger character. They're all kind of younger because people kind of want to explore the transition into Assassin, how their mind maybe changes uh, to, to accept killing or things like that. But the truth is that it's way more fun to see someone who is already killing and what their psyche is like, <laughs> how they are okay, how they justify it, what makes them think it's okay or what drives them to do what they do. And that's what I wanted to explore. So on that vein, given how you described the series, have you read Joe Ambercombrey's series? hundred percent. All right. So if nine fingers and this guy get into a fight, are you, is your character kicking his butt or, or is he going down? If, if, Nine Fingers brings an iron sword to the fight. He's walking away victorious. Otherwise, he can cut this guy to shit. But at the end of the day, he's going to heal up. He's going to come back and he's going to win. So Nine Fingers is going to become like Seven Fingers at the end of this fight. Is what you're saying. And he's going to become like No Head. Okay. All right, Doc, back to your regularly scheduled questions. Okay. So, but I do like the fact that as much as I like a coming of age story at times, there are so many of them. Sometimes I get a little bored with them. Yep. And that's what happened yeah. to me when I started writing this one. I was like, I don't want any of that. That and as a person who's kind of been around, I, you know what? I went to basic training. I don't need to read a story about it. So, you know, so I, I definitely think that there is a place for people who want to read characters who are kind of already established in what they're doing, but they still have a journey to learn. And um, so I think that's awesome. And um, so, what so, sorry, the idea behind this is like, if you're, if you're focused on the character development physically, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the whole training montage thing, yeah, you know, it, it's sort of, it's sort of, it's not, it limits you to what you can actually tell because these characters are being pushed to the limits of their physical endurance. They're also kind of discovering who they are. You know, you see it in Evan Winter's Rage of Dragons, amazing series, but you still get that training montage scene. And pretty much every single story that has that, the character development progresses in a very similar way, which is fun when it's done right, but it's, it's hard to come up with something fresh and unique. Whereas when your character is already at the peak of his powers, kind of like the, the idea behind the special ops sniper, right? He's already the biggest badass sniper in the special ops. So now who does he become when he's already physically amazing? What's his emotional development? It's, it's, it's a, it's a realm that you're never going to get to until you kind of become peak excellence. It, yeah. it, it's, it's much more nuanced and complex well, like, as like opposed to going... developing muscles, picking up a sword for the first time and learning to fight. Yeah, well, this is a... beyond progression fantasy. This is the veteran fantasy kind of. Does that make yeah. sense? Exactly. So and... the, the problem with that, Doc, is that if you start every story where they're already at their peak power, you, you artificially cap how far you can go. Uh, or you as far just as do like the Witcher. Yeah, no, but so I mean, you, you find creative ways to challenge them. You have care. You can still have character development while being at your physical prime. But the other part of that that they don't factor in, and as someone who studied dead people who never tell me I am wrong, Doc, I'm never wrong to them. Okay, you're always but wrong. One thing that is often left out is unless you're like the rank and file militia, and even then, most of what they're fighting with were spears that don't take as much skill. And I know all the Hema people are going to go nuts, but comparatively speaking. Uh, like the there wouldn't be that boot camp type scene because they would have grown up doing it. It wouldn't be something that suddenly you're 18 and here's a sword and, and whatever. Yeah, but, but that's what people write though. 
nine times well, out of ten. Because, that is what people write is like military a is, montage academy or boot camp thing. And there's a reason for that. It makes sense but, if you think. Of, go ahead. You're going to interrupt me anyway. So do it. Go, go. But also, if you're getting into some of the fantasy is one of the things that people always forget when they're we're writing fantasy versus history, since you want to be historical, is the fact that the human lifespan is such that we at, at adults at, at in historically, like in the history and time period where swords were common, an adult age of maturity was reached much earlier than it is now. So once again, like that coming of age story that you, that as much as I love them, they're really great. They're based on a Renaissance world. Okay. Yeah. They wouldn't be doing that at 18. They'd be doing that at like 13, 13. or 12. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a certain level of the, that issue with it. And and believe me, I'll, I'll have this argument all day long with the people who want to say that, well, why has to be a teenager. Yeah. So. And there is some of that, but the other part of that is, it, it, when you're doing with military environments, it sort of makes sense. Recruit, private, corporal, like the, the rank structure as a progression just sort of fits. Um, and if you do, if you start where they're already a lieutenant commander and a ship's captain, looking at you, David Weber, you know, at a certain point in time, they're not involved in all of the action. Like they're no, I get on the it. bridge bridging. I get it. One of, I told David one of my one of my favorite reasons for the Born and Fury saga is the fact that she actually starts as a private and spends most of the first book as a, a, as enlisted. It's like, and I I once had somebody who very mistakenly informed me that you can't have good enlisted. A series cannot be based around an enlisted character because it wouldn't be interesting. They're officers, weren't they? No, they were civilians. <laughs> they were even worse. No, even worse. Oh. <laughs> All right. So. I, I know. Uh, don't get me wrong. We love civilians. I will gladly die for my my civilian counterparts when I was in the service. However, well, not gladly, but you know. Well, not gladly. I don't know. I met my ex. Um, Fair. That's valid. That's valid. However, having said that, civilians who try to tell veterans what to uh, how it is really just need to stop. And we'll just leave it that like that because this is a family-friendly <laughs> show. But so I, I get to a point, but I, I think where a, a, a training montage really works well is if you're dealing with a magic wield, wielder type character. Because yeah. then you can artificially cap that. Well, when do they come into their power? If their power doesn't hit till X birthday, you've artificially created a situation where they couldn't have trained early. Uh, but it makes sense why they would do it. I get that. And we got sidetracked talking about the larger field of fantasy and sci-fi and all of that stuff when we should be talking about Dark Blade. So, Doc, I don't know cool. what question we were on, but get us back on track. This is I was going to ask him, what tropes does he hit best with this series? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, let's just focus on the first book then. Well, what that's, that's tough. You, what tropes do you think you either hit best or that you've taken in and you've tweaked and twisted and turned around? Um, so the lone wolf trope, which is the Witcher, the Mandalorian, um, the Waylander, you know, all of these these sort of lone wolf type characters, that's a really fun one for me to write. And that's exactly who this character is. But then there's this little this little window to his humanity. There's this little girl that he saved from dying when she was an infant in the middle of winter. And that's sort of his one link to being human he actively goes and seeks her out and that's sort of a fun way to like it's sort of like how in the witcher especially the tv show siri goes and finds him so i don't know if that's a spoiler for anybody but 
Uh, I think at this point, the spoiler warning's been expired. Exactly. He falls into it. He falls into this role of protector and caretaker, which is the most common trope. Whereas, uh, well, I love it. He doesn't so much fall into it. He kind of lands skick it, screaming and kicking into it. Exactly. And I, I think that is adorable. Yeah, and it happened in Waylander too. Waylander kind of stumbles across this group of people, and this is the the opening scene of book one, so I'm not spoiling anything. And he kind of just adopts them as his, you know, protectees. Um, but I wanted to be a bit more intentional with this one because it went into the research uh, behind the psychology of assassins, what drives them to kill, what motivates them, where their limits are, all of that. So it's kind of the intentional steering away from the full lone wolf thing. He's not actually alone, which in truth, no lone wolf ever really is. They just think they are. Um, the, the evil, the evil creatures, you know, the evil maniacal, not mustache twisting. There is no mustaches being twisted, but they're pretty <laughs> standard gloaty, you know, maniacal villains. I like that kind of thing sometimes. So did you, when you wrote your, um, your fantasy esque world, did you go with the, the Roman Saxon style, um, a facial hair or did you go full Viking where it's like wrapping around their ankles as they walk? How, how'd you, how'd you portray that? Since, you know, we talked about mustache twirling. The fuck? I think oh, I, I stuck with the, with the more family friendly show. <laughs> um, I, I, I kind of pictured um, 16th century Paris or Prague. Okay. Okay. So that was kind of the vibe that I was going for. You know, I really had fun giving all the noblemen just terribly colored outfits like you know gray like, was, and that, green and purple and that, just super gaudy that was standard in that era though exactly that's so much fun God. it's not that's as impactful doc if he says we didn't have any mustache twirling if nobody had mustaches that's all I'm saying. oh there's plenty of mustaches lots and lots of them just no one twirled them okay. jr just assassinated by mustaches because he couldn't grow one when he was in the army yeah, it looked like a caterpillar. And then when I tried to save it, because I had one of those, uh, if you've seen, what was that uh, that movie they did about the Marines in, in Iraq? Uh, Hurt Locker? Not Hurt Locker. It's, uh, it's followed an actual unit. But anyway, that sergeant that was like talking about mustache hairs, like I had one of those sergeants. So he made me shave. And then I did that half tired. And then I had the Charlie Chaplin mustache. And if you know what that looks like, you know who else had that mustache? And I'm, like, yeah. I'm shaving it. That was Charlie the end of my Chaplin. That was my end of my foyer and the mustache hair. It just it ended badly. I was scarred for life. Mustaches do not work. Every single one of them looks flat. Yeah, they don't work. We'll I mean, if I could have pulled off the handlebar mustache like Dave Robinson. Oh he doesn't pull it off. Either go beard or go no hair. <clears throat> Doc, I think I might have to mute you. you. You take that back. No. All right, so uh, what subgenres do you think this hits best? Doc is done. We, we fired her. <laughs> I'm docking your pay. You know what? Half pay for you today, Doc. I'll just tell your mother. She'll reinstate it. Oh, that's cheating. She likes me better than you. This is true, but that's why it's cheating. All right, so what uh, subgenres do you have in this uh, Assassin, the first book of the Dark Blade series? It you know it probably fits either epic fantasy or dark fantasy because it hits a lot of the, the horror e themes. You've got you know creatures of the abyss kind of thing, uh, a lot of darkness, a lot of horror. Like if you watch Doctor Who and you stop looking at it sci-fi and you understand that it's a horror, you'll see that a lot of the same tension building elements are exactly what drive you know the Dark Blade story. But at the same time, it's also pretty epic in scope 
and it's got the magic, it's got the big world building, all of that. So dark epic fantasy is what I say. Okay, Doctor, there's a comment for you real quick. Ask that question. Um, that question doesn't make sense. All right, so, so normally we would ask later in the show, but since you mentioned... Right. Um, oh, it, here, that's what you put, you misspelled here, and it threw me off. I typed it too fast. Jeez. Everyone's a critic. <laughs> like, I had so, an editor for a reason, all right? You're so sped. Moving on. I love you, but you're so sped. Okay, so how is it that you go about designing your creatures? Is it too much caffeine, too little caffeine, inspired by nature or history? My creatures, like my monsters? Mm -hmm. um, just kind of whatever would fit the, the worst or the most like ideal thing for the circumstance. So, you know, you're under dark uh, underground in the dark. You don't want to run into a giant spider, right? Uh, you're in the forest. The last thing you want is a giant wolf. Now, if you're in a cave in a forest, well, you find something that's kind of a creepy wolf combination spider. of both, you know? So it's just like whatever would be the most, the, the most appropriate for the theme of the story. Let's say the character is someone who, you know, he sees the, the enemy as like very, like a, like a serpentine, right? He's sneak, sneaky, slippery, cunning. So he kind of has you, it's you setting up this, this thing of hated hatred for those kind of things. So you don't pit him against a wolf, which is this more savage bestial thing. You pit him against some kind of creepy crawly monster that will really trigger that disgust for that personality type. It kind of plays into that. So how much sentience or agency do you give to your creatures when you when you write them? Are they just mindless machines or um so actually I don't really have that many creatures. Like the demons in this one, they're basically the demons from the Warcraft universe in the sense that they are weird looking, amoral, violent, vicious humanoids from another world and these people they don't understand that this you know they don't understand the idea of alternate galaxies or alternate dimensions or parallel worlds through portals or whatever it is so they look at them they see horns they see hooves they see fangs they see tails they're like demon right easy uh but it's kind of fun to explore the way that the demons the so-called demons they actually have a morality scale that actually interlaps with humans, but it's also a lot less, you know, a lot more amoral. They're a lot more willing to just do violence. Um, it's more their way of life. So it's kind of a fun thing. They're, they're basically humanoid with full intelligence or even more intelligence. So I can definitely see them looking at somebody and going, dude, that's messed up. And I'm a demon saying that. 100%. I actually have that point in one of my books where the demon's like, wait, you're coming at me? This human person is a serial killer and you're coming at me? What's up with that? Yeah, totally so think that's you, awesome. Do you incorporate a little bit of snark and sass into the stories or do you play it straight? Um, a bit of both, depending on the character. You know, there's always some quirky, funny, weird, oddball characters. Um, this character, this assassin, is 100% the straight man, you know? Um, stuff happens around him. He can have some funny sort of happen to him, but he doesn't really crack a joke. Or if he does, it's a very Geralta Rivia kind of joke where it's like a little grunting laugh and it's, a, you know, really, really short one-liner joke. But, but there's a lot of sort of weird people around him who are just quirky and so much fun. So when you talked about the weirdness and the quirkiness, you basically described Doc. So she is smiling because she feels happy now that she was noticed. So we appreciate that. Absolutely. I, I'm the one who thinks of the comeback or the quip was perfect for that situation like two months later. 
Yeah. <laughs> oh, if I only oh, said my. this. Uh, if yeah. it makes you feel any better, Jayhar, I'm the person who goes, wait, I was getting hit on. And it's normally, <laughs> it's normally, it happened at a convention and it's two months later. And of course, because it happened at the convention, the guy doesn't live anywhere near here. Fair. That's fair. So uh, now let's so talk about the story itself better. more than we already have. But um, can you tell us, is there anything else about the main character that you haven't told us that you think, you know, the the audience would want to know to make them fall in love with him so they can read the book? Um, you know, he, on the face of him, he is a cold, brutal killer, right? I mean, he's half demon. He's the bad guy. You know, every assassin, every cursed dagger wielding person and every demonic thing, they're always the bad guys in every single book ever, classic fantasy. But this guy is someone that actually you can really kind of understand and relate to and empathize with. So in the first scene, he just chops his way through a bunch of people just to kind of have some fun and set the tone for the bloody. And then in the second scene, he goes and he frees these these women who have been um, trafficked into the city and he gives them money. And then he goes on and he does more and more things throughout the whole series that kind of slowly endears... Fuck, I always forget this. Endears him to you. I always get those two wrong. I hope I got that right. Um, Close enough. I mean, we've been drinking, yeah. so, you know. There you go. Uh, and and so, I like, he starts off... He starts off as this really dark, grim character, but over the over the course of the first book, you can't help but fall in love with sort of the humanity of this non-human character. Okay. So speaking of characters, what about secondary characters? Everybody loves a good secondary character. So do you have a favorite in your universe, obviously? A secondary character that's, you know, I have so many that I love. Um, there's some really fun, kooky ones in my Night Guild series. Like I, I wrote this this one character for a, a reader who'd been super, super helpful in like editing the first book. And I'm like, I want to thank you by writing in a character. What would you like me to write? So she's like, I want, I want you to write a crazy cat lady. So I wrote a crazy cat lady, but instead of a cat... She has this little like like miniature lemur kind of character that just like bounces around her laboratory and she's an alchemist. So you can imagine that this little creature is just causing all kinds of chaos. And this 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 woman was the most fun character I have ever written. I need to go read this book. Yeah, I think I'm going to have to spend my uh, November credits and uh, get the audiobook. Okay, but I am a chemist, so in chemistry is basically modern alchemy. Oh, hundred percent. That's Fair. that's the beauty so, of using alchemy. It's the it's the fantasy version of hand wavium. Fair. <laughs> so now we get to ask my favorite question: the uh, the side of side of darkness in every universe. Tell us about the bad guys, without spoilers, obviously, because sometimes you know the, knowing who the bad guy is is a spoiler. But what is the bad guy in this universe? Ah, oh, you know that's such a tough question because there's so many different flavors of bad guy, and so I actually got this this tattoo on my arm. It's sort of the hold motto on, for on. the world. Give me just a second; I'll put you on the solo screen for a second. There you All go. Right. So, I mean, I can see it. Let's see if I can get it closer. Perfect. Apologize for all the hair. It says there is <laughs> no evil, only desire, and what you will do to obtain it. Oh. So the whole evilness of the world is just people basically doing whatever it takes to achieve their ultimate end. So maybe one person just wants to be powerful. One person wants to protect their family. One person is fucked up in the brain and they just want to kill people. I don't know. I, don't, I apologize if I'm swearing too much on this thing. Nah, you're, fine. you're fine. We have veterans on this podcast. I've heard family friendly thrown around, so. 
I mean, family-ish of military family is a little bit different than a normie family. There you go. Okay. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. We've only had a one who, uh, Casey, whoever made us not label it not safe for work. Okay, uh, good. So. All I'm saying is June Cleaver would be blushing at our, our conversation. <laughs> um, Ward, leave it to Beaver. Yeah. Jeez, Doc, it's like you were raised in a barn or something. I read books. <laughs> Do they have books in that? I don't know. I'm going to look that up. And if they have books, I was I'm also like, in the sandbox, no so leave me alone. Fair, fair. They might not have been watching uh, Leave It to Beaver, but we right. had one channel that aired English TV. Leave me alone. All right, Doc, ask him about dark uh, dark alleys and fighting. We're going to get back on track. Okay, we can do so this. Okay, character found you in the back dark alley and knew that you were the author, literally, of all that happened to them. How do you think you'd fare? The question is, how many seconds do you think I would survive? And the answer is two. Okay. Because poor bastard goes through some horrible, horrible things, and that's just in book one. Like, basically, when I when I rewrote the series, I, I I rebooted, I restructured a lot of the story, but I kept in all the really, really like dark, gut wrenching, painful elements, and then I found a way to double down on all of them, and I wrote in extra characters to kill off in horrible, horrible ways with these deep emotional ties to the main character, and then continued to add more and more and more of them to where this this guy, if he was not superhuman in the sense that he's got you know impossible stamina speed uh strength and then you know healing ability he would have broken a thousand times over with just the horrible horrible things he goes through oh well and on that cheery note i feel a little yeah. bad for this character <laughs> but but i will i will say that it always ends with a hopeful note it's not grimdark that's actually why i specifically didn't say grimdark is because it doesn't end with the world is terrible and everything is terrible and always will be it's the world is terrible but there's this little tiny glimmer of hope so maybe oh, things aren't going to be as bad as they are now that's well, the one thing i didn't this, like this world speaks to my my soul uh, that's the one thing I didn't like about Joy and McCrombie. And I've read, I read the, the nine finger series. I can't remember the name mm -hmm. of the um, first law, first law. And like, uh, you know, it did a book club and we read it and it's like, I liked the fantasy part of it. I liked the fighting, but I didn't like that. I didn't like any of the characters. Like there was no one to root for. Even the good guys were bad guys. Yeah. And so yeah. I, I, I don't mind grimdark, but it's got to have that side of hopefulness. That but it then it's not grimdark. You don't think, you know, that's think the whole, that's the whole flavor of Grimdark is that it's just dark and it just gets darker. And no matter what happens, it will always be dark. So I thought Grimdark was, and this might be another fireside chat doc, scribble this down. But I thought Grimdark was much like steampunk and it was just an aesthetic, not necessarily a trope. It is an aesthetic in the sense that the world is very gray. It's gray. It's very dark. It's uh, dark. Dark. It's war torn or the aftermath of a war. You get a lot of mud. You get a lot of rain. You get seedy alleys. Uh, what was it? The, the the dripping bucket. Every single grim dark world has to have a tavern named the dripping bucket. Um, and characters that are very very amoral. The gods are absent. We actually did a podcast on dissecting grim dark. Super fascinating. Um, Where is the podcast? Can you link it in the um, after the show? We'll link it in the show notes. So they yeah, can listen. for sure. Yeah. All right. Um, that but that it saves is, us from spending another hour. <laughs> it's basically 
this hopelessness that permeates the whole story. You can have characters who are hopeful, but at the end of the day, their hopefulness is shattered and it's just sort of grimdark. Like if you read the end of the first law or the end of the new, the second trilogy, Age of Madness, you'll know exactly what I mean by the grimdark vibe. Just the ending. It's a satisfying ending and yet you walk away feeling, ugh. Okay. That's, uh, yeah, That's no, good. I don't think I could do grim dark. <laughs> so since we talked about character some and you know you getting slaughtered in a back alley, when you write, uh, your process is a little different than than many of the authors that we've interviewed. So do you have a favorite archetype when you're planning? Um, you know, I always plan out the character archetype beforehand. So for example, with my military fantasy series, I sat down and I thought about who each of these seven characters in the company will be not only what purpose they fulfill, the messenger, the medic, the scout, the sniper, all of that, but then also what kind of people they would be, whether they were the shield or the heart, or they were the, you know, the sassy character or the, you know, the quiet reticent. I always know what kind of characters they are. And then of course they evolve and they grow as I'm writing them, but I have this idea beforehand so I can just kind of lean into it and make them more so. Okay. Okay. So this is clearly part of a series. We know because you've said so. Amazon says so. Bezos has said so. Bezos is never wrong. He's the oracle of all things knowable and oh lovable. Oh, my God, Derek. Seriously. <laughs> is he giving you a week around? <laughs> I, it's so fun to get her going. All right. This is a series. There's three books out, but is their story done? What more can we expect besides apparently a reach around? Doc, there goes our family-friendly rating. Absolutely. You Dude, that's fine. That's still fine. My son has no idea what that means. <laughs> that's All true. Right, but, so where is the series going, do you think? So right now, the book three, which is going to be released tentatively in early 2022, is the 75% the mark of the first story arc. Book four will close the first story arc. After that, I have a second story arc, which is going to take five or six books to wrap up because of the complexity of the material. We're talking, you know, continent-wide holy war. We're talking, um, you know, battle of faiths. We're talking massive full-scale invasion, casualties in the hundreds of thousands. Like, this, this is ramping up to be big, but it's taking time because it's all from one character's perspective. So it's got to be layered and done you know, and of course, he's got some serious complexity in terms of emotional development that we're going to have to get through. So at the end of the day, this series is going to be probably two to two and a half million words, 10 or 11 books. Okay. Um, so we all know that every, so you've basically set this up as a st stereotypical sort of fantasy proto-European type environment, right? So yeah. you're not having like technology, so... What sort of magic, so we can presume swords, spears, that kind of thing. So what kind of magic instead does this universe have, aside from, you know, demons that talk in your head? Um, so there is a certain degree of magic that is not understood because it's all science, right? Everything magical is science done. So in, in fact, my military sci-fi series is set in the same universe in book two. He flies over this planet and they can't land because of volatile and unpredictable energy readings. So that kind of explains how that they're everything connected. So there's these alien beings that they see as sort of these ancient creatures of wisdom and power, sort of like the elves, but 
aliens. Um, and a lot of what's left in the magic is their technology. So anytime I want to introduce magic, I just have to figure out a technological way to make it work. Don't show any of that, but do that into the story. And then I, I can do it. So it's really, really fun because there are no limits because it's all sci-fi technology. This alien race is, you know, tens, 20, 30,000, 100,000 years more advanced than these primitive humans, but it's all behind the scenes as quote unquote magic. So literally anything I want right now, there's magic weapons. There's, you know, um, in the last book, there's this stone that actually like shifts sort of like what's that stuff called the, the ferrofluid. fluid where it, yeah. like it, it's actually magnetically charged and it activates and it like consumes the body of this young man as you know dead dude and like drags him down into the stone and like it's really really fun because I can kind of do anything. So of all the stuff that you're doing, what is the one thing you'd want to take and use for daily use? Oh, that's tough. Um, alchemical stuff. I have so much fun with alchemy because again, you can make up some names of cool plants and just drop it in there. So I've the, the, the hunter, he has this supplier of alchemy, alchemical supplies and he's just like, give me this and give me that and give me that. And it's so much fun. Awesome. So how would you abuse that? Oh, in every single way possible. Uh, the, the alchemist makes this love potion that makes the person break out in heart shaped spots and then forget where they got the potion from. And it doesn't actually work for them to fall in love. So it's just sort of like a punishment for being stupid enough to want. So just like prank, prank level awesomeness using alchemy. That sounds amazing. So do you see the aliens in this? Since you said like it's, you know, you have basically super advanced. And how did you go about designing them for the series? Uh so you do you do see them you see first their buildings the buildings they built you know it's it's very fantasy structures you know the big spire towers and bridges and all kinds of cool stuff um which makes sense to a fantasy person um but then ultimately you get to see statues of what these people look like and then you actually get to have like a like a vision where he communes with them whether it's telepathically or digitally or whatever it is uh, so, so you do actually get to see them so how did you go about designing them? Did you let nature inspire this or did you just kind of go, well, they have to be tall because their buildings are tall. It's kind of like what would, what are some features that are connected to humanity, but are alien enough. So there's this, there's this, um, the, the, the fear of zombies that we humans have is because the known becomes unknown this person that we are familiar with their face we know them we love them and all of a sudden they're trying to eat us so it's more terrifying than this monster that we can't quantify so i basically leaned into that and i took things that were normal like let's say human joints and tweaked them so there's instead of one elbow joint there's two elbow joints and three wrist joints and that looks creepy and weird and then these things, you know, with with like um, like humanoid skulls, but the skull is shaped wrong. And it's just basically doing that, just taking something familiar and making it unfamiliar, a little bit scary, a little bit horrific, mm -hmm. but more alien and exotic. Every time you say uh, alchemy, I'm thinking of that uh, series that I listened to back, oh, I guess, last year, The Discovery of Witches, because it was all like the whole series was predecessor. Like it was pre predicated on the concept of alchemy. Yeah. So how in yeah. deep into that did you go? Did you just use that as sort of your hand wavium or did you actually dive into some of the, the practices? 
So there's plenty of hand wavium. I'd say 75% of it is hand wavium. I did use some alchemical symbology, pagan symbology in the structure of the world. Um, I do some research, like if I want to create this, you know, this potion, right? That's killing people, a poison. I do research whether it's viral or bacterial or whether it's an actual poison slash venom. I do research so I have an understanding of the mechanisms behind these things. And then I make up my own version of them. Okay. So you understand the rules just enough so you know how to break them. Exactly. Okay. Now, if you had the, uh, the alchemy powers in real life, how would you abuse them? Well, I think just a lot of really, really awesome pranks against people who would have no way of knowing it's me because I'm a total prankster at heart. And I don't mean like cruel pranks like you see on those, you know, those YouTube videos or whatever. I just mean like funny pranks. Okay. <laughs> That's the most honest answer we've given. So are you going to introduce things like lightsabers? Because if it's technology, you can get away with like, you know, laser swords in a fantasy world. Or are you going to try to keep the uh, the skin of fantasy on the, the world? So it's all going to be, it's, it's going to be skinned as fantasy, but like in the fourth book, Savior, you, you see guns, but they're called Scorch Slayers. You know, the, the, the word means nothing. They shoot lightning bolts, which could be blasters, or it could be, you know, um, plasma fire, it could be anything, but it's called this magical sounding name. And it's based on the technology of these ancient peoples that use magic. So it's just, it's all skinned as, as fantasy. So I can kind of get away with anything. Um, that way it's fun nice nice so um clearly we're we're at an hour and, and 12 minutes we're we're winding this down but uh, was there anything about assassin um or the dark blade series that we didn't ask that you have to tell us before we move on i mean we're looking at two million words there's a lot of things that you didn't ask <laughs> <laughs> this is this is true and, and i could gab forever like we could be talking to the wee hours of the night but doc's like i got a day job my boss wants me to be awake when i play with chemicals i don't know what that's about <laughs> i spilled hcl on my hand this morning and it barely tingled i was i'm not sure if it's just that i was not awake i know that the hcl was perfectly fine so it was not the chemical fault for, for those who aren't as smart as us, who don't know what HCL is, could you tell them Hydrochloric acid? Oh, yeah. I totally knew that. Like, yeah. Hydrochloric acid is a strong acid. It completely disassociates in water. Okay. So that's bad if it spills on you, in theory. Well, I mean, it didn't even tingle. I'd rather have that than the hydrogen peroxide on me, so. All right, so. <laughs> but our hydrogen peroxide, you know that tingly feeling you get from like the 3%? Our hydrogen peroxide is a lot more than 3%. So clearly we've got to wrap this up because otherwise if we don't, you're going to see in the news this giant chemical fireball from Atlanta and they're going to be like, oh, JR kept her awake too late. It'll be bad. <laughs> so so we're going to have to start winding this down. Doc, stop making those faces. All right. So uh, before we let you go, dear listener, let me remind you that your thoughts matter too. Um, I assume you're here because you like to read the words. So uh, your or reviews are the, the right. Yes. Maybe they just your like review... it when I abuse you. Maybe. Um, that could so be a poll. Rev... 
It probably is the torture aspect. I get that. So your reviews help the right readers find the right books. So please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms. And I have said it once and I will say it again. Even bad reviews can help you find the right books. I have seen books that were slaughtered as having too much cussing. And I'm like, dude, sign me up. I had another one that was like, this was written by a 12-year-old with ADHD who talked about guns. And I'm like, I'm there. So, So, you know, your reviews matter. Because I'm so mature. Doc, you stop that. I'm totally mature. Sweet. One of my best ads is for is is a is a review. It's a it's a three star review. The guy is just blasting it, and I'm like, I love this, and it's my ad. I actually was going to do that. the The twelve year old writing uh, with ADHD writing gun porn was actually a review of the Sleeping Legion. But in the purges that happened of the reviews on Amazon, I lost it. I'm like, no, that's the one I wanted ah. you to keep. And I didn't think to screen grab it because you know I wasn't planning ahead. I was still a rookie. But yeah, I just thought that was funny. I think sometimes reviews can can sell a book because if you're telling why you didn't like something, that might be someone else's what they do like. Um, unless Absolutely. you are Scott Moon and he got a bad review that said these are not the Jimmy Dean sausages I ordered. So <laughs> we're sorry, whoever you are, sir, that you didn't get your sausage. That is that is a big deal. Uh, and we apologize on behalf of Bezos and, uh, and all his holiness. <laughs> uh, she doesn't even take the bait anymore we know it's time to wrap this up all right so before we let you go can you tell listeners and viewers how they can find you andy yeah so you just google my very french canadian name Peloquin, or so i don't sound like a douchebag peliquin uh, just google that andy peliquin and you'll find me on my website.com um facebook amazon yeah that's pretty much it and as usual, dear listener, it will be in the show notes. Um, and you can find us on our website at anchor.fm backslash blasters tech and tech blades. Again, that's anchor.fm backslash blasters dash and dash blades. We're on the Twitters at SF underscore fantasy underscore show. Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. Hey, Doc, do you want to tell the ones in the back what SF stands for? Sci-fi. Woohoo. She's Woo-hoo! awake. Uh, you can email the show at blastersandbladespodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's blastersandbladespodcast at gmail.com. You can send hate mail to docseska at blastersandbladespodcast.com. We have a Facebook group where all the shenanigans happen, and we convince Doc that she is wrong on her holy quest to put pineapples on our sacred pizza. That is Nobody has convinced me. Most people agree with me. Well, they're all clearly part of this plot. I know probably Andy is too. Are you one of those? I am not. All right, you get to stay then. All right, I mean, it's over. Canadian, so he doesn't it's... believe in anything offensive. This is, well, what if we talk bad about maple syrup? That might get him going. Well, that's just that's just downright rude, eh? Okay. <laughs> so you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash groups backslash Blasters and Blades podcast. Again, backslash groups backslash Blasters and Blades podcast. You can support the show on a reoccurring monthly basis over at anchor.fm backslash Blasters Tech and Tech Blades. For as little as 99 cents a month, you help keep the lights on. Or you can do a one-time donation at buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. Again, buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. Be sure to put in the comment section that it is for the podcast and I will keep Doc Seska and Nick Garber duly intoxicated. They will drink until their liver surrenders. Never surrender. That's right. All right, bring us home, Doc. <laughs> Thank you I for sh- spending this. What? Hold on. Are you gonna are you gonna let them know the secret you told us before the show about what went in your uh, hot chocolate? Bourbon and marshmallows. <laughs> yeah, I want some of that now. See, she's been teasing me the whole show, sending me pictures of the bourbon. Oh. All right, bring it home. No, so it's, it's, the, it's the one that I got that I wanted to name the show after, Blade and Bow. 
Yeah, they cease and desist letters. Lawyers got involved. They did not thing. do a cease and desist letter. God, you're ruining my joke with your facts and reality. You're ruining my joke with facts and reality. I don't like this. No, you're ruining. Andy's like, I'm never coming back. These guys are insane. A <laughs> little bit, but that's why we're here, right? Yeah. You know, it's entertaining, <laughs> apparently, for some. Thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For the absentee Nick Garber, who seems to think Star Wars is a sci-fi, he's wrong. Uh, J.R. Hanley, I'm Seska. This was the Blasters and Blaze podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, torturing J.R., cheesy jokes, all things that go boom and booze. And booze. And with <laughs> and that, we're out.